0: Grace and peace to you all and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen.
1: What exactly was God thinking when he chose Israel and and why would he choose that nation and not choose the others? Well, then it starts to make sense to us. God didn't choose Israel because of anything in them, but in spite of all he saw. And what he decided to do was take that nation and use them as a demonstration of how good and merciful and gracious he really was and is.
0: We are now finishing up chapter 13 in the book of Matthew, starting in verse 44. In Pastor Sam's message, The Treasure and the Pearl, we look at the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the pearl of great price, and the parable of the dragnet. And herein we get a great look and a great reminder just how Jesus sees the church and how he sees you and I. Let's listen in.
1: You no doubt heard the saying, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And the absolute proof of that statement is found in God's estimation and and his vision of the nation Israel in their day and of the church in our day. You see, if you go back to God's choosing Israel in the first place, what you'll find is a bit surprising. It wasn't because of anything in them Anything extraordinary about them. No, it was actually in spite of who and what they were that God chose them. And if you're a little haughty thinking, yeah, that was them, but we're the church, no, you'll find it's the very same thing. It wasn't because God looked and saw what great people we were or what great potential we had. No, he saw that we were a needy, sinful people. And because of his great love for the world of lost sinners, well, He first in the Old Testament birthed the nation, Israel, and then in the New Testament birthed the church. And what we find in these first couple of parables, in these concluding series of parables, picking up at verse 44, is how God sees the nation, Israel, and how God sees the church and what he's done for both. One other thing in the way of introduction, though, before we jump into all of this, Israel had... A fundamental problem, having been chosen by the Lord and blessed by the Lord and protected and preserved and disciplined by the Lord, they had difficulty seeing how the Lord could love anyone besides them, except them. Now, from my perspective, as somebody who studied church history and really studied the Bible for years and in a couple decades now. I have more problems understanding why God loved them, not how, you know, He would love someone else. And really, it's the same thing in the church. When we begin to think, well, how could God love that miserable world out there? Well, how did God love us when we were a part of that miserable world out there? You see, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That's the testimony of scripture, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And it has always been his intention that people would trust in him, turn to him, admit we are guilty sinners in his sight, and cast ourselves on his mercy as the sinners we are. Well. The parable of the hidden treasure here in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had. And bought it. What we have in this first parable is really a picture of God's dealings with Israel. What we have in the second parable is God's dealings with the church. And you'll see how beautifully and perfectly these come together. Now, when you realize that God chooses not on the basis of human merit, but simply on his own sovereign gracious merit, his own merit nature and character, that it's not as will any perish, but all come to repentance. It starts to answer some puzzling questions. What exactly was God thinking when he chose Israel? And and why would he choose that nation and not choose the others? Well, when you understand that he chose Israel to represent him to all the world, and even prior to that, when he first chose Abraham, He says, I'm going to make your name great. He certainly has done that. I'm going to make of you a mighty nation. He he did that as well. And he said, I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Well, that's happened too. And then he says, among other promises made to Abraham, that all nations would be blessed through him and through his seed. That ultimately is a reference to our Lord and Savior Jesus, a descendant of Abraham who through Jesus, of course, all nations are blessed. But when we see God chooses Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and then and then uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and it keeps going down the line, we get to Moses and we see what's going on there with the children of Israel, then it starts to make sense to us. God didn't choose Israel because of anything in them, but in spite of all he saw. And what he decided to do was take that nation and use them as a demonstration of how good and merciful and gracious he really was and is. Well, the fundamental problem they ran into, though, is they were sinners by nature. And even after God blessed them and used them and protected them and did all this for them, they continued to sin against him. They were idolatrous. They were rebellious. They not only didn't rightly represent him, they had no heart to represent him. They looked at the world and saw just people unworthy of the blessings they had so freely received. And so, what happens to Israel? God, as this parable tells us, well, he hid them in the field. I know it sounds strange at first, but we know from our study of the earlier parables that the field is the world. And what's strange is that they are and and were and will always be a treasure to God. He hid them in the field. How and when did that happen? Well, throughout Israel's relationship with the Lord, In various times of disobedience and rebellion, God brought judgment against them. And what he would do is he would discipline them, but never completely destroy them. He always preserved a godly remnant. That's important because it reminds us that when he's disciplining us, it's not for our destruction. If he wanted to destroy us, he could and would. But he disciplines us as evidence of his love for us, and his patience toward us, and, and his ultimate good purposes and in, in choosing and blessing us. Well, during the time of the northern tribes' rebellion, the Assyrians came and took them captivity. Later, during the southern tribes' rebellion in the nation of Israel, well, the Babylonians came and took them into captivity. But in 70 AD, we actually find the fulfillment of Jesus' promise to his disciples that destruction was coming upon Jerusalem and that not one stone of the temple would remain upon another. Titus came into that city, by the way, and he ravaged it so radically that those who didn't die by the sword and weren't taken prisoner escaped and left not just the city, but the whole area. And so Israel, who had been in the land since their formation, now dispersed out into the world. A treasure nevertheless to the Lord, though, now hidden in the world. If you get to Rome at some point, there is a massive monument to Titus who actually took Jerusalem and destroyed it. It is it is so large, it pretty much would reach the ceiling in here in these outer walls. You can walk through it. And and what the Romans would do to honor those who had gone out in battle and conquered peoples for them is they would make these great monuments, these great arches. And And in the Arch of Titus, it shows them carrying the spoils of their battle. There's a huge menorah, giant menorah carved into this rock for the express purpose of showing that, hey, it was those people that, that worshiped the God of the menorah that they had conquered, that he had destroyed, that he had devastated. From that point on, Israel pretty much disappeared. Now, because of the long period of time from, well, first century until 1948 in the 20th century, when Israel were actually became a nation again, not just restored to the land as God promised, but, but a, a real people in the land. Well, during that time of church history, first century to 20th century, lots of Bible commentators began to question if God actually had meant that he was going to bless and use and restore and, and do all those things to Israel Literally. And so they began to spiritualize those passages, applying them no longer to Israel, but now to the church. There is a real danger, of course, in that for so many reasons. Among those who do that very thing, what what happens is they, they talk about all God's promises to Israel, literal, physical, temporal blessings in earthly places. But they never recognize that in Ephesians, God says our blessings aren't temporal and earthly and physical. They're spiritual and they're in Christ Jesus in heavenly places. You see, God gave us better promises, more precious promises. He's given us an inheritance that can't be robbed or stolen. It's all awaiting us at our meeting with him in heaven. But back to Israel for a moment. What happens during the time of their dispersion, I believe described here as them being his beautiful treasure hidden in a field. What happens during that time is that God begins to work in and through the church. Now we were chosen to do the very same thing they were chosen to do. To know the Lord to walk with the Lord, and to represent the Lord. And if we get a little haughty thinking, well, yeah, he cast them off and now he's using us, we really need to examine the church carefully. And if we look at church history, we find, well, we haven't done much better. And I'm not talking about just during the Crusades or other devastating times in church history. And by the way... If you talk to people and they're like, man, the church has done great damage to the world and so many things have been done in the name of Jesus, you need to know all that's true. But but it was never Jesus doing it. It was never Jesus organizing it or empowering it. No, people who called themselves the church, whether they were or not, only God knows, went out and in his name did a lot of things that Jesus never taught them to do, never promoted their doing, and never blessed them in. And so I don't try to deny church history. That's what a lot of people are doing in other history, rewriting it. No, I just say, hey, you're right about all that. But what about Jesus? He's the one who said, love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. How do you fit him into the crusades? Well, he wasn't a part of that. That was just one ungodly group fighting another ungodly group. And one of... Those groups just happen to call themselves Christians. Whether they were or not, any of them, only God knows. But, but here's my point. God, in burying Israel for a season, as it were, as this parable really relates, decides to use the church. It's been a long season, almost 2,000 years of church history. But we haven't really done much better in representing Him. And if you go through Matthew 9, not Matthew, excuse me, Romans 9, 10, and 11, and especially, let me read you something out of Romans 11, 11. You can go to it if you're fast. If not, don't worry about it. A lot of people remember more of what they hear, and you can jot the reference. Or remember Romans 11, 11, that's not all that hard. Here, God Well, he contrasts the nation Israel with those who become believers, well, in the world or out of the world. We call them the church, of course. That's the group we're a part of. And he says in verse 11, I say, have they stumbled that they should fall? And that word fall means permanently. Permanently. Certainly not, but through their fall, and that is really temporally, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. For if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. Now note those terms, their fall, their failure, their fullness. We know about the failure. We know about the fall. Where's the fullness? Well, we don't see it yet because they've yet to really turn back to the Lord. But we'll talk more about that in a moment. I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle, he says to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them, for if their being cast away is reconciling of the world, what will be their acceptance but life from the dead. There it is again, cast away in acceptance. Their fall, their failure, but their fullness. Here's what's happened. God promised that someday he would bring Israel, the real Israel, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not just spiritually, but physically, that he would bring them back into the land, that the land would flourish, and the desert would blossom like the Garden of Eden that there would be every fruit and vegetable and tree and forest and, and, and so here's what happens. Ezekiel 36, 37, 38 tells us that they'd be back in the land, that the land would flourish, that the people would begin to flourish, but it isn't till later that they really understand it's God who's brought them back. And if you go to Israel today, something I don't recommend, uh, it's not very safe to travel there or we'd be going. We toured the country for years and it's wonderful to go to that land, to walk where Jesus walked, to to teach where Jesus taught, to stand in those places, to be on the Mount of Olives and look and know that he prayed on this this, this little mountain range right before the crucifixion. I mean, you're in the place where he walked and lived and taught and, and died and was buried and rose again. The place from which he ascended into heaven. And the city, by the way, we're told he will return to That when he returns, he'll set his foot down on the Mount of Olives. Now, if that's not literal, there's no possible way to know what he is teaching or saying. So, so here's the point. The people are restored to the land. 1948, they became a nation again. 1967, they took Jerusalem for their capital. Does that mean that they're serving the Lord and honoring the Lord? you got to know they're not. In fact, most of the people in that land that we met that were Jews, they were atheistic Jews. They don't even believe in God. And the only time they read the Bible is to show that they have a deed to the land. But but, God promises that's going to change. Why? Because he says he has plans for them that are good plans. And he's going to write his law in their hearts. And, and that they have a place in the coming kingdom. And that is important to us for so many reasons. First of all, we don't want to confuse Israel and the church. We're not Israel and we don't want to be. You see, Israel is going to go through the great tribulation. If you've studied through the book of Revelation, that is part of how God deals with them and brings them back. And in Revelation 7, I believe it's chapter 7, 144,000 are sealed. It's interesting to go through the commentaries over the years of those who misunderstood and said, well, that can't really be literally Israel. And they applied it to all sorts of fanciful ideas, some to the church, some to various cults. But the bottom line is he says 12,000 from the tribe of Dan, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah. He's so careful to point out they're from the 12 tribes. Why? He wants us to know it's literal. It's Israel. And so they got to be back in the land. And the land has to flourish as it has in so many ways. But they're going to be restored to him. At some point, we're told, Jesus is going to stand in their midst. And they're going to say, what are the meaning of these wounds in your hands? And he's going to say, these I received in the house of my brethren. He still bears the marks, by the way. We sang one song that suggests such a thing, and we'll sing another at our communion time today. But John, when he sees Jesus in heaven at the throne, he sees him as a lamb having been slain. He sees him still bearing the marks of the crucifixion in heaven. The only thing, the only thing that that reminds us physically of what he endured, bearing those wounds. Well, we have many other reminders, though, scripturally and biblically. So, what's the story then? He hides them as a part of his discipline through the dispersion, but he doesn't destroy them. The treasure, his treasure, and we're, he calls them that and Exodus 19, he calls him that in Malachi chapter 3, and he calls him that throughout the Old Testament, hidden in the field. The field we know from the earlier parables is the world, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, Some have suggested that this is really man finding treasure and and seeing that the the gospel or the Bible or the Lord is wonderful and selling all we have in order to obtain him. It's completely upside down and, and here's why. We don't have anything with which to purchase God's gracious gifts to us. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But, but there's a beautiful picture in an Old Testament story. It's in the book of Ruth. It's actually her life story where a guy named Boaz falls in love with her and decides he wants her to be his wife. But in order to obtain her as a wife, he has to buy a field. Why? Well, it's a part of her inheritance and whoever buys the field gets the wife. Now, I know that might not sound good to a lot of you gals. What? Buy the field and get the wife. But remember, he loved her and had to buy the field in order to obtain her, to have her for his wife. His motivation was love. And so the picture is a beautiful type of what Jesus has done for us and what he did first for Israel. He bought the field so we could have the precious treasure within Ruth was loved by Boaz. Boaz bought the field in order to have Ruth. Israel is loved by God, so he buys the entire field in order to find and and restore and bless Israel. Well, the Pearl of Great Price, this second parable, it speaks to us of the church, and you'll see how beautifully this picture comes together As he says, the kingdom of heaven again is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who having found one pearl of great price went and sold all he had and bought it. Pearls are an interesting aberration in nature. They're actually created in oysters and they're created because of a wound to the oyster. A a grain of sand will work its way in or find its way in and become an irritation in the side of that oyster Oyster And the oyster begins to secrete the stuff that hardens to protect itself from that that wound, as it were. And that secretion becomes a beautiful pearl. Now, there's a picture for us there spiritually. I'm not spiritualizing that reality. I'm just saying we can see a parallel because it was through the wound that our Lord took in His hands, in His feet, in His side that that the church has been birthed, that this beautiful pearl to the Lord has been birthed. Well, kingdom of heaven, like a merchant seeking goodly pearls. Now, pearls are meant to be displayed. Oh, I I failed to mention one thing culturally as to the buried treasure. I should throw it out there for you because it kind of helps just reading all of that. In those days, the days in which these things were written... Banks wouldn't have been the safest place for your money. I'm not even sure that you could have found a bank in the sense that we know it, but there were people that you could deposit your money with and if things went well and they weren't robbed or dishonest, you might get it back. But many people just buried their money. Why? You knew where you buried it. No one else knew. You could dig it up when you needed it. And so when he talks about burying a treasure in a field, understand culturally, they would have all been tracking with him perfectly. They were just needing to learn something spiritually. He was talking about something physical. They understood. We'll see that's always been his method in the parables in order to teach something spiritual that they yet to understand. Well, when it gets to the pearls, not meant to be buried or hidden away. No, they're precious, but they're meant to be displayed Jesus tells us, of course, the church, the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And this beautiful pearl, it's a picture of how Jesus sees his church. With all our falls, faults and failures and, and all that we fail to represent him in, he still sees us as precious. Well, when he would found this one pearl of great price, he went and sold all he had and bought it. Some have read into this, the idea that if you give all you have, then you can buy your way into the kingdom of God. It's more than aberrant. That is demonic, that teaching, that idea. And here's why. First of all, we have nothing with which to pay. And that's why that song, and we sing it sometimes, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. The idea that we could pay for our sin, pay that great debt, buy our way into the kingdom, it's absolutely unbiblical. Jesus, though, is the one who sees the church as a precious pearl. And he, having found this great pearl goes and sold all he had and bought it.
0: In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, we are asked, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, for those things belong to God. Now, it's not only a great comfort to know that I am valuable to God, especially considering the price he had to pay to purchase me, but also this truth must affect every area of my life. It must change the way I think, speak, and act as I need to continually remind myself I belong to him and must glorify him in everything I do.